Welcome to Nefarious New York. I'm Allison. And I'm Meredith. So are we ready here? Yeah, we're ready. We're ready to jump right in. We're going to start with Peter and Joan Porco. They lived with their two children in Del Mar, New York, which is a suburb just outside of Albany. Peter was a law clerk at the Supreme Court of Albany. And on November 15th, 2004, Peter Porco did not show up to work. And this was not like him, so his co-workers started to worry. After some time had passed, a court officer that worked with Peter went to the Porco house to make sure everything was okay. The court officer got to the Porco house at around 11.35 a.m. When he went inside, he saw blood everywhere and found Peter Porco, 52 years old, dead. He left the house and called 911. When the officers arrived, they went in the house and they went upstairs and found Joan Porco, who was 55. They found her in her bedroom. She was covered in blood and she had some pretty obvious head wounds. And you'll see why based on the weapon. The paramedics said that they found her on her back with her left eye missing. Her jaw was crushed. Teeth were missing and her skull was visibly fractured. Wow. But she was alive. And right next to her on the bed was a three-foot axe. Ooh, okay. Mm -hmm. So there was blood all over the bedroom walls. The bed was saturated. But amazingly, Joan was awake enough for the officers to ask her questions. Okay. You know, when you get in a situation like that where someone looks like they're not going to make it. You got to act fast. You got to ask and get what information you can. So the first question is, can you hear us? So she nods yes. Then they ask her if a family member had done this. And she nods yes. Hmm. They ask her if it was her son, Jonathan, and she clearly shook her head no. When asked if it was her son, Christopher, she shook her head yes. Then they repeated the question again. Is Christopher the one who did this to you? And she again nods yes. Hmm. Okay. So meanwhile, the local paper called Christopher at his dorm and asked about the attacks for the upcoming story. He had no idea what had happened, and he called the police to find out, and they directed him to the hospital where his mother was being taken. Which, it's so crazy to me. Like, the local paper's calling him, and he had... well, let's see, but he doesn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Like th- th- this is well, right? He officially does not know anything, right? Whether but... or not he actually knows because he did it or right. whatever. Officially, no one reached out to him until the paper called him. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like you would think the police department would call him first, but okay. So this is the part that I find absolutely fascinating. After some investigation and based on all the blood spatter throughout the house, the police determined that Peter, so he's attacked upstairs, he's described as being almost decapitated. Like that's how bad the attack was. So he gets up. He tries to get dressed for the day. What? He stumbles downstairs, starts to make breakfast. What? He starts to empty the dishwasher and he went outside to get the newspaper. 
And his, it's just basically explained like your body, your brain is, has the routine it's used to doing. And he was so pumped with adrenaline that his body just went into like auto mode and started doing his daily routine. And then he just ended up collapsing and dying. But, but I've heard this a couple of, in a couple of other cases that are not New York cases, but isn't that fascinating? Okay. So let's just say it was just him that was attacked, right? Mm-hmm. I, I could understand it a little bit more because your body goes into some kind of adrenaline mode. But is he not freaking out because his wife was attacked? Oh, he has no idea that he was even attacked. Like they believe that he, he just wow started this automated routine and they see he's got a few dishes out of the dishwasher. There's blood all over everything. He's just kind of like wow. almost like a robot. I've, I've never heard of point. that. I mean, I don't like to use the word fascinating, but it is fascinating. It is very interesting that your brain in a situation like that retrieves some sort of routine and you just do it as you're literally dying. Wow. Okay. So the autopsy revealed that Peter had been hit with the axe 16 times in the head. Right. So now the investigation begins. Jonathan Porco is quickly cleared by an alibi. And if you have an alibi, being in the military miles away is a pretty good one. So he was in the Navy, stationed in Charleston, South Carolina. And once Jonathan is ruled out as a potential suspect, police now shift their attention to his brother, Christopher, whom Joan had mentioned also was the attacker Mm -hmm. or, or nodded or whatever she did. So Christopher attended college in Rochester, New York, and the news reported that he was a junior economics major at the University of Rochester. At the time of the attacks, he said he was asleep on a couch in his dorm. Yes. So proximity-wise, he's not that far away. He's not that far away, but he's not super close either. I mean... right. I'm just saying it's not like he's in, a, in another state. Three and a half hours. Okay. So that's... So so that's geographically, far. he's about three hours away from where his parents live. Correct. Okay. So that's a good distance. Now, so Christopher's saying his, his alibi is basically that he was asleep on a couch in his dorm room, which is not a great... It's not like being in the Navy. But the police got their hands on surveillance video that showed... Christopher leaving school in his yellow Jeep Wrangler and police created the route that he would take from school to his parents' house if he went there on the night of the murder and it required passing through two toll stations. It wasn't now with Easy Pass where you just go through, which that would probably even be better, right? but it was the where you got the ticket okay, and then you went, got off and then you paid the ticket. They contacted the toll stations and got all of those tickets for that night. And they sent them off to the crime lab in the hopes that there would be some forensic evidence on them that would link Christopher to those toll booths on that night. Right. So the results did come back and the crime lab was able to obtain a full DNA profile of Christopher on one of the toll tickets. So that proved that he did cross the toll heading towards his parents' house at some point that night. Right. Which he has not 
admitted to. So the police are a little concerned now. They also know that the Porcos had an alarm system on their home, but it was disarmed with the code on the night of the attack. And then the lines were cut to Hmm. make it look like the person didn't have the code or whatever. But the only people outside of Peter and Joan that would have had the code were their sons, Jonathan and Christopher. And we've already ruled Jonathan out. So it's really not looking good for Christopher. Uh, No. So a neighbor also remembered that the yellow Jeep was in the Porco house driveway around 4 a.m. the morning the attacks took place when Christopher said he was back at college. So he's he's lying, obviously. He's lying. And the police are now going to look further into Christopher and they're finding out that he's not the perfect son that um, he seems to be at his mother's bedside. So in November of 2002, so that's a couple of years before the attacks, the now, Porco wait home a was... Just before you go on. So he's at mm-hmm. her bedside. I mean, is she awake? Yeah, I mean, she survives. She's disfigured, but she's... Right. Yeah. I mean, and if Him he, and his brother it, are there. Right. But if he did this, like, wouldn't you... I don't know. It seems weird to me. Well, let's say in the moment you are in it, so you remember it, and then as your body heals, it may erase the memory of that night, so you may not remember that Mm. your kid did this to you. Okay. Saying. Okay, so keep going. In November 2002, their home was burglarized while Christopher was home. Okay. Joan's laptop was stolen, and it was later discovered that a man bought the laptop on eBay and they trace the seller to be Christopher. Hmm. So he basically burglarized his own home. Okay. In June 2003, the vet clinic where Christopher worked for like on and off for six years was burglarized. A camera, cell phones, and computers were stolen, and those items were found in Christopher's possession. Okay. So now we're going to the fall of 2003, Christopher was forced to leave the University of Rochester because he was basically failing out. He wasn't going to class or anything. He then had to enroll in a local community college, but failed out there also. Hmm. He told his parents that he left or he got kicked out of the University of Rochester because a professor messed up and lost his exam. So he ended up failing the class and the school kicked him out, which... They don't kick you out for failing one class, though. Exactly. That's what I'm... Yes. That's where I was going with that. I can read your mind. Mm Mm-hmm. He goes to the community college. He fails out there also. But he then reapplies to the University of Rochester and forges the transcript from the community college showing that he got A's and B's. University of Rochester lets him back in. Oh. Okay. So he's back in University of Rochester. He has to pay the tuition. So he reaches out to his father and says, I need like a $2,000 loan to kind of cover the difference of the tuition or whatever. So the father provides him with the documentation necessary to secure that loan. But Christopher takes out a $31,000 loan. Wow. So Peter finds out about this loan when the creditors began contacting him. And in an email dated November 4th, 2004, 
So this is just 11 days before the attacks. Peter, the father, wrote, Did you forge my signature as a cosigner? What the hell are you doing? You should have called me to discuss it. I'm calling Citibank this morning to find out what you have done, and I'm going to tell them I'm not to be on it as a cosigner. After contacting the school, Peter, you know, realizes that his son is on the hook for the fall semester tuition. So he does secure a loan to pay that. Okay. But just that. I now, mean, do we we're... know why? Uh, uh, do we find out why he's stealing all of this money? I think he just was living above his means and portraying himself as something he wasn't. And he okay. needed to kind of keep up the charade. But he's a college kid. I mean. I know. Okay. Everybody should be broke. Like that's normal. Right. In early November, Peter ran his credit report and saw that Christopher had also secured another loan oh. on top of the $31,000 for $16,450 to buy that yellow Jeep. Mm. And this to Peter, this was this was fucking it. This was the last straw. Yeah, I mean, what a fuck up. So in that email, Peter Peter wrote him another email. You can take over now. Okay. So in that email, Peter said, I want you to know that if you abuse my credit again, I will be forced to file forgery affidavits in order to disclaim liability. And that applies to the Citibank College loan if you attempt to reactivate it or use my credit to obtain any other loan. This is horrible that you have to send this to your son. I know. His mother wrote to him, Dad and I are very upset about your not communicating with us. We don't know if you are well or mentally stable. Dad is about to have a nervous breakdown. Do you understand that you are not behaving responsibly? If you don't call, I will be there to see you tomorrow. For God's sakes, call. Mom. Now, around this time at school, Christopher is failing all of his classes and is looking at being kicked out again. So he was asking people to take his exams for him. Things are, they're really unraveling here. Mm -hmm. So now one of his major sources of income was basically selling things on eBay. And the problem was that he would sell a laptop and then never send it. So about five days before the attack, eBay canceled his account, and he owed them over $3,500 for the fake sales. He owed American Express $4,000. His Jeep was going to be repossessed because his father canceled the loan, which uh, I don't blame him. He had an outstanding $200 cell phone bill. He owed the University of Rochester $16,000, and his credit, his credit card was canceled. So on, right, this is like, it's, a, it's stressful for an adult person, but for a, I mean, he created the mess, but it's a big mess now. Uh, yeah, I would say so. On November 15, 2004, Christopher was arrested for the murder of his father, Peter, and the attempted murder of his mother, Joan. He was released on bail that was put up in part by his brother, Jonathan, and also by the vet clinic that he had robbed what? and that he had worked at. Yeah, they, I guess, supported him. Although Joan originally pointed out her son as the attacker, 
when she fully recovered from her injuries, which included some brain damage, Mm. she stood behind her son. She had no recollection of the attack at all, and she really believed he was innocent. She wrote letters to the judge, to newspapers, asking them to just leave him alone. He didn't do it. Hopefully she doesn't remember. I I, mean... I don't know if that's denial, but you're not looking at a perfect son. I mean, you're looking at a a fuck-up. Sorry. Well... Go ahead. Classmates at the University of Rochester testified that Christopher had been drinking really heavily in maybe the months or definitely the weeks leading up to the attacks. He... um, It was also reported that he threatened to kill a female classmate and at a party, he got into like an altercation with someone else there and they got a little physical, but he had to be pulled off of the person because he was choking them and he was like not going to stop. So he's really going off the rails here. Yeah. Um, and to your point, why he racked up all this debt and stuff, um, he portrayed himself to his classmates as a millionaire. He kind of flaunted that he was a trust fund kid and that his family had you know, oceanfront vacation homes all over the place and ski houses and stuff like that. And he also think they think he was gambling online. Well, he definitely was gambling online, but the debt was maybe over 40 grand that he had lost to add to the long list. So it's just piling on him. Yeah. So classmates also testified that Christopher was not asleep on the couch in the dorm. They testified that he was not seen on campus until about 8 a.m. the morning of the attacks. The amount of forensic and circumstantial evidence was overwhelming, to say the least. After only six hours of deliberations, the jury found Christopher Porco guilty of murdering his father and attempting to murder his mother, and he was sentenced to 50 years to life. In court... Christopher claimed that the police took a minor dispute with his dad out of context. He said, I miss my dad so much and my heart aches for my mom. In television interviews, Christopher claims his innocence. He said, I can't imagine attacking anyone, let alone my parents in that way. I know they, the killers, are out there. At this point, I have little confidence that they will ever be caught. Well, here's another little tidbit. And, and there was, let me just tell you one little bit more. During this trial, there were letters sent to the local newspaper claiming to be the killer and saying that killing Peter Porco was just the beginning. We're going to avenge some mobster guy. Nothing else was reported about those letters, but they definitely, there were a few of them that were written during the trial I wonder if it was Christopher writing them to kind of throw everyone off. But it just doesn't make any sense to me that somebody else did this. I mean, if you go back and you look, the alarm was disabled, right? Right. So it had to be somebody who knew the code. And who... The neighbors saw the yellow Jeep in the driveway when you said you were asleep on your couch. Right. Three and a half hours away. You're lying the entire time. So what are your excuses for lying? But how could his mother not see... Like, she's obviously cannot handle the fact that her son did this. And her mind is not allowing this 
these pieces of evidence to compute for her somehow. Because if you look at all of these pieces of evidence, how do you explain it? No, I mean, the only the only answer that I have is that he did it. And obviously, other people thought that, right? Because he's in jail. Right. And I guess either his mother doesn't want to believe it, but does know it deep down, or she really, really does not remember and will not allow, like her body will not allow her to understand that he did do this. I mean, you're not looking at somebody who has a good track record. I mean, you're just, I... I I mean, it's a disaster waiting. When your own child burglarizes your house, that's a huge problem. They do not get to go away to college. They, you know, there's issues that need to be addressed. At the very least. That happens, then you steal from the place you work, and then it's just, it keeps spiraling. He created this giant mess by wanting to be this playboy millionaire popular guy. Right. But what do you gain by killing your parents? Well, I think maybe there was just some anger that they weren't going to be footing the bill for him anymore and he couldn't take the money and take out the loans. So he was angry or... There was a huge life insurance, but that wasn't, that's usually a go-to for reporting. And I didn't see evidence of that anywhere. You know, as the motive, the motive was more like angry that his parents were going to like wreck his ability to scam them. You know, they weren't going to put up with it anymore. So they were kind of cutting him off. Uh, I, I just, I don't understand how you do that. I mean, it's. With an axe. With, that's what I'm I mean, with an axe. Like, do they know where the axe came from? Yeah, yeah, the house. It was in the house. It was like, in the, you know, we have an axe. We chop wood. Right. I just, I don't, and do we know anything about his brother and what his brother thinks? No, I couldn't find really anything about that. But he bailed him out. So there's got to be some support there. How, how, do you, how do you live with yourself? Well, something's wrong with you. Like we say this almost every single episode, like I would be inconsolable. I wouldn't be able to function. But if you were able to do it, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. So why not be able to function? Yeah. How many times do we use the word sociopath? Right. I mean, that's he fits the description to a T. The, the, the only good thing in this is that regardless, he's in jail where he should be. And I will say he bailed him out before all this evidence was presented. So I'm assuming once Jonathan saw all the evidence, he may believe that his brother is guilty but at the time you know when you're bailing someone out you don't have all the facts in front of you you're just like what the hell my brother would never do this let me get him out right right so his initial reaction was to believe that his brother would never do this now i don't know what he thinks post trial knowing all the evidence he reminds me of somebody that i used to date in college and this guy was a compulsive liar gambler owed so many people money and 
like literally had to flee to another country. Oh my God. He's, he's never come back. And I could totally see him doing something like this because he was such a manipulator and he was so good at lying and there was, there was no kind of remorse for anything that he was doing. And when you have somebody like that, it, it's almost like he, di- he didn't believe that he did these things. Like, and it sounds like, th- like he really thinks he's innocent. Maybe, maybe he doesn't really think he's innocent because he knows he did this, but he thinks, why are they so pissed off? Like, this is not a big deal that I forged a $31,000 loan. And he was angry at them for being angry at him for all the shit he did wrong. Right. That's insane to me. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of things in this case that are fascinating. When you think of like kids killing their parents, I always think of the Menendez. Uh, Well, that's exactly who I was thinking of. Obviously did it for their financial gain. Like there was no evidence that there was like some huge financial gain for Christopher. No, but so it was almost like he did it because he was pissed at them. Yes. But the other thing that ended up coming out with the Menendez brothers is that there was abuse there. There was sexual abuse. So that's, that's what they said. That's what they said. I don't know how true that is, but it wasn't the picture perfect situation, you know, that that ended up coming out much later. And there were a lot more details that came out later. But what's crazy to me also is that here you have one of the people that was attacked, right? And there's, they're, they're alive. The evidence must have been so damning against him because here's the, the, the mom saying he didn't do this, right? But the evidence right. was, must right. have been so stacked against him that it was, you know, probably a very easy decision. Well, yeah, it only took them, what they say, six hours? Yeah. That's pretty quick. I mean, and in my head, I want to say, how stupid do you think people are? Well, that's part of the whole sociopath, right? You're smarter than everybody mentality. Yeah, but he wasn't smart at all. (laughs) No, thank God, because he's where he belongs. Otherwise, maybe he would have finished her off. Uh, That's awful. So that was this week's case. Mm. Well, that was Um, a disturbing one. And guess what? Our numbers are going up. Oh, that's good. We'll be back next week. Yes. Um, with with another case and um, coming soon to a theater near you, some Patreon uh, footage or content, I should say. Something, something. It'll be something fun. 